please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. As we begin, I think I'm standing on firm footing when I say everyone over the age of even two or three years old has experienced the feeling of being humiliated. Here are a few examples from my life. When I was in fourth grade, I was embarrassed or humiliated by my teacher because I did not know how to multiply two numbers times two numbers. I missed that week of school, I guess, I'm not sure. In middle school, I was humbled on the ball field because I was picked last for the two teams that were uh, pairing up to uh, play one another. And I, I don't understand that because I did play Little League in elementary school and I was like the star of the team. What gives? In high school, I was humbled on a date. I acted weird with the girl that I had asked out. She was a popular girl in the school and my status in the school went way down after that. And then my humiliation continued even in marriage after accusing my wife of doing something wrong, I discovered not only was I wrong about what she did, I was the one who did it. What these examples are intended to show in a humorous way is that humiliation has one direction, down. When you're humbled, you go down. In fact, the word itself Humiliation or humble comes from the Latin word humus, which is a way to describe the soil. So basically, dirt. If you feel like dirt, you're being humbled. Well, how do you respond when you were brought low? If you're like me, you probably respond in a predictable way. I want to make sure that never happens again. But sadly, it isn't our first reaction, though perhaps it should be, to say, what is God trying to teach me in this situation? When you're feeling low at school or with your parents or in your job, if you're being brought low, asking the question, what is God trying to teach me, is the solution that the Bible consistently points us to. It's also what Joseph learns in his life, which is why we're turning to study him next in our series this fall on the biblical patriarchs of Genesis. Now I say patriarchs, but there are only three, and you know their names by now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how is it that we're turning to study Joseph when we're talking about the three patriarchs? Well, our text this morning actually begins by talking about the third patriarch, Jacob. Genesis 37.2 tells us that what we're about to read relates to the to the generations of Jacob. And that's what we get. Jacob in our story is firmly fixed at the center. But the blessings of God to Jacob, that third patriarch, come to him and to his family through his 11th son, Joseph. And so Joseph becomes the spotlight or the star of the story, even though the story continues to be about the patriarch, Jacob. Why is he in the spotlight? Well, he's the one who helps lead 
Jacob's family into Egypt during a crucial moment in history. But this advancement of blessing doesn't come in an obvious way, and it doesn't come easily. Joseph, in the process of advancing his father's family and securing the blessing of Abraham and Isaac for Jacob, in the process, Joseph is humiliated, which is why my sermon is titled, Joseph's Humiliation. I'm hoping that this morning, by hearing about Joseph's story, that you can learn to relate, that you can appreciate that the Bible, as it addresses life's problems, does so in a very realistic manner. I'm hoping this morning that as you hear about how Joseph goes down, down, down to the dirt, that you'll recognize that perhaps you don't have it that bad, and that you'll see, as Joseph had to learn, that God is at work even in your humiliation. As one commentator puts it, God works from lowliness to exaltation, from slavery to freedom, and from suffering to glory. That's what he does in Joseph's life, and that's what he continues to do in each of our lives today. Now we're going to see Joseph's humiliation in three stages. I said, down, down, down. It's like Joseph, we're walking down three steps into the basement of, of life. And this is a basement without windows and where you can't get out. And so each of these three stages, just when you think Joseph's situation has gotten as bad as it could get, it gets worse. And it covers two chapters of the Old Testament, Genesis 37 and 39. And for now, if you're curious, we're skipping chapter 38 because that relates to one of Joseph's older brothers whose story we'll come back to at a later point. Now, after reviewing this story, I'm going to show you some lessons that God wants you to learn from the story and how each of you can apply it to your lives. So let's begin with prayer. And as a reminder, when the pastor prays before a sermon, he's thinking about the parable of the sower. And in that parable, we see Jesus spreading seed among the ground and in various areas. And some of the seed falls on the path. That's not a good place for the seed. And some of it falls in good soil. That's where we want it. So the prayer of illumination is a prayer that the seed of the word will fall on good soil in each one of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is like seed. And because each of us, I'm sure, are dealing with some trouble or another, and perhaps someone is dealing with something that's very difficult this morning, our prayer is that in Joseph's humiliation, we would learn from your word about what you might be up to in our lives and that you would show us what we need to learn from you in these times when our lives seem to be going down into the dirt. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Joseph's three stages down into the dirt, the first step down I'm calling, and these are three C's, is criticism. The criticism that Joseph re receives from his family is part of, and the first part of, his humiliation. Humiliation, as I, as I mentioned, is, the, is usually referring to something that lowers you in some way. Whether you, you lose status, you lose power, 
or you lose your reputation. And Joseph, in his family, he loses all three of those things. He loses status and his power and his reputation from this family criticism. The first uh, bit of criticism we can see in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So I'm calling this criticism from tattletaling. Now, if you're a child, you've probably been told by your parents, no tattling. And sometimes parents will say, if you tattle on your brother or your sister, then the punishment that that person was going to get, you're going to get. It's a great disincentive to tattling. But, you know, parents, we want the information at the same time. You admit it. So maybe you're not that harsh. Maybe you just caution your child against tail-bearing or tattling. The problem is, and parents know this, and children, you know this too, some of you are really good at spinning the tales so that as the story is retold, you, you come out looking fairly innocent. And the guilty brother or sister, who may well be guilty, looks out coming very bad. Well, needless to say, tattletaling doesn't win you much affection from your siblings. And so Joseph is feeding his father's flock with a few of the other boys just older than him, the, the, the younger brothers. There's a total of 11 brothers at this point in the story. And they're doing something that Joseph doesn't think is right. So the text says in verse 2 that he brings back a bad report. Now, whether Joseph was right to do this, we're not told. Whether he comes cockily and, and arrogantly, we don't know. I suspect that he was a little bit on the cocky side here. That's my hunch. But that's not the only criticism he receives. If you continue to read in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. I'm calling this criticism from favoritism. Jacob, Joseph, Jacob favors Joseph more than his other ten sons. We don't know why, but it seems like if anybody would have known the dangers of favoritism, it would be Jacob. I mean, Jacob experienced what it felt like to be not favored by his father Isaac. Isaac favored Esau. And all the problems that that favoritism that Jacob's dad created in his family, I'm sure at some point in his life Jacob said, I'm never going to do what my dad did. And there he went and did it. He favored Joseph more than the others. And this favoritism will result, among other things, in Jacob giving Joseph a distinguished coat of royalty. We actually heard Pastor David Stoddard, who's one of the missionaries that our church supports, preach on this text uh, several weeks ago. Well, this coat of royalty further distinguished him and made him the object of his brother's hatred even more. The text says they wouldn't even speak to him peacefully. This means they couldn't hold an ordinary conversation with him. And I don't know if there are sibling rivalries in the house this morning or if you have a sibling with whom you can't speak. My guess is some of you do. Things have gotten so bad that you can't even speak to your brother or to your sister. 
This is criticism from favoritism. The third criticism, if things couldn't get any worse, they do. Joseph has two dreams, starting in verse 5 of chapter 37. And in each of the dreams, Joseph sees his brothers bowing down before him. This is going to go over really well, isn't it? And then he even sees, in a second dream, he sees his, his father and his mother bowing down to him. And as he shares it, he seems to be a little um, socially unaware, I may put it that way. Hey guys, you wouldn't believe this dream I just had. In this dream, all of you, all ten of you are bowing down to me. Isn't this awesome? That's not exactly how it says it, but that's how it reads to me. Criticism from dreams. And it is important to note that there's no mention of God in the dreams. So we're not permitted to, to read the dreams as divine revelation per se. Now Joseph is going to go on and, and receive specific revelation from God. At this point, I think the dreams come from God. They certainly show us a glimpse of Joseph's future. But they're not a direct word from God as we have seen in other parts of Scripture in the patriarch's story. So that's the step one of Joseph's humiliation. It's criticism. Criticism from tattletaling, criticism from favoritism, and then criticism from his dreams. The second step downward for Joseph, the second C, is worse than criticism. I'm calling it conspiracy. Joseph's humiliation takes a violent turn. His brothers are out pasturing a flock about a two days journey, maybe a little more. It's about 50 miles. And the father, Jacob, wants to know what his sons are up to. Now, this is interesting. If you look at verse 12, the brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And he said to him, go now, verse 14, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So a couple of interesting things. One, why isn't Joseph pasturing the flock with his brothers? I think it may be because he's got the coat. I mean, he's, this, this son is, this is royalty. He's the privileged son. He's going to stay back. And perhaps because Jacob favored him, and Jacob was the favorite of his mother, Rachel, or Rebecca, rather, perhaps there was a similar kind of favoritism going on with the mom as well. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, Joseph isn't with his brothers. And then he's sent to check on his brothers. Like, I mean, what is Jacob thinking here? Does he think this is going to go well? I mean, the dad had to have known. But for some reason, he did it anyway. So he sends his son out to go check on the brothers. And it's the youngest son, too. Do you think these big brothers are going to listen to what the little brother says? Hey, you're not shepherding the sheep correctly. You need to send him over to this watering hole, not that watering hole. What are you thinking? Have you never been shepherds before? I mean, I just, I'm having trouble seeing how Joseph's work here is going to be at all helpful. Nonetheless, as they see the boy coming, or as they hear that he's coming, they hatch or, or formulate a violent conspiracy to murder their brother. So we see Joseph's situation is getting significantly worse. First, the family criticism has caused him to be mistreated. And now 
his brother's hatred is leading them to a violent conspiracy a web, and, a, and a web of lies to cover their actions. Here's how it goes. They plot amongst themselves and say, as we murder him, we're going to take his fancy coat, we're going to give it to uh, one of our dogs, or we're going to tear it up as if it was eaten by a dog or a wolf, and then we're going to cover it with goat's blood, and with this piece of evidence, this piece of created evidence, we're going to murder Joseph and convince our father that he was killed by animals which is a perfectly reasonable thing to happen on a two-and-a-half-day journey through the desert. The oldest brother, Reuben, though, he intervenes, and he suggests a more moderate approach. Calm down, guys. We're being a little over the top here, don't you think? Let's find an empty well. There's plenty of them out here. And let's put Joseph in one of those. So this suggestion by Reuben is partly because he's the oldest brother, and selfishly, he doesn't want to get in trouble from his dad. But secondly, I think he says he has a sense of responsibility as well, and perhaps based on some things that have happened, a guilty conscience. Nonetheless, Reuben's plan is agreed to, but then he goes away. That was his big mistake. Now we have nine brothers who are, you know, chomping at the bit to get after Joseph. And so when Reuben is away, the cooler head, which had prevailed, they get... They get it back into their mind, I think, to probably kill him. And so Judah intervenes and says, guys, calm down. I think what we should be doing here is selling him to this band of traitors as a slave. I mean, that, <laughs> how that's a good idea, I have no idea. So they agree to Judah's idea, and Joseph is sold into slavery and when Reuben comes back, he's horrified. What am I going to tell dad? So they resort to the story that they had concocted in the beginning, the shredded uh, coat of many colors covered with blood. They send it on ahead, which I think is a little passive aggressive. They don't have the guts to bring it themselves. They sort of send it, they FedEx at home or something like this, right? When Jacob finds out, you can imagine his favorite son has been killed. He's mortified. And the text tells us that he refuses to be comforted. I wonder what that means. It certainly means that he loved Joseph so much that his heart was broken. But I also wonder if he didn't suspect something was up. He refused to be comforted. I mean, how can the brothers comfort their father when they are the source of the father's problem? They created the problem that has broken their father's heart. And so whatever comfort he would have normally expected to receive from his sons at this point, they're like, I, I hope you're okay, Dad. Like, he, he had to have known, it seems to me, that something was amiss. Nonetheless, the violent conspiracy is the next and lower step for Joseph's humiliation. Each time we see Joseph's humiliation gets lower and lower to the ground. The third and final step of his humiliation is that he is treated as a criminal or he's charged with a crime. Joseph finds himself, having been sold into slavery, working as an honored slave in the house of a prominent Egyptian official who's named Potiphar. And this takes us to Genesis 39. And because of his good looks, Joseph becomes the object of lust for Potiphar's wife, 
who has no name in the story. She is refused, however, because Joseph is a righteous man. And at this point, it's the first explicit God talk that we see coming out of Joseph's mouth. Joseph is pursued and he resists. He's pursued and then he rebukes. Look at in our text, verse 39, chapter 8, or chapter 39, verse 8. Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from this from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he, he's pursued and he resists. He's pursued and he rebukes. Potiphar's wife keeps coming after him. She keeps pursuing him. And so finally he's pursued and he runs. One day, verse 11, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and flees to get out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Hebrew here, by the way, is the, the, de- the ethnicity of Joseph and it's meant as a racial slur. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice and as soon as, I, as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So now the woman who was the pursuer and the attacker pretends that she's the victim and charges Joseph with the crime. Well, they find Joseph and he's thrown into prison and his humiliation has reached its lowest point at this point. He is now in jail. The favored son is now in Egyptian prison and no one knows where he is. Well, what can we learn from this story? First of all, I just want to say the stories in the Bible are fascinating. And I hope you see that they're every bit as interesting as what's going on in your life, in many cases, much more interesting. And so reading the Bible, God wants to teach us not just through the doctrine that's there, but also through the stories. And there are three important lessons. There are tons of lessons here, but three in particular that I want you to hear this morning. First, the first lesson is Joseph's humiliation was designed by God. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't random. God wasn't asleep. God wasn't indifferent. This was part of God's plan in Joseph's life. The story actually hints of this in the beginning step of humiliation in that the dream that Joseph had actually prefigures Joseph's ultimate exaltation. The dream just skipped that part about how low he would have to go before he eventually got to that place where his brothers were bowing down and honoring him. In the second step of Joseph's humiliation, the violent conspiracy of his brothers, we don't see God mentioned at all. But when he comes out of the other side, before he is charged by Potiphar's wife, you heard how Joseph was describing his situation. How can I do this and sin against God? Something had happened through that period of being sold into slavery 
that kind of awakens or opens up Joseph's heart. This is a covenant child. He was raised in a God-fearing, promise-keeping household. But Joseph doesn't explicitly start to honor God until this later stage in his life. God is clearly at work behind the scenes and Joseph's heart is slowly starting to open to recognizing God. And at this point, I want to encourage you, particularly if you're a child, you may not fully understand how God is at work in your life yet. If you're a young adult or even uh, in college, but God is at work in your struggles, preparing you for a future. And he may not have hinted at it in some dream to you, but you can, be, you can rest assured that God is indeed at work. And Joseph, later on in the story, after all the dust settles, he's actually explicit in one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 says this to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. That's worth repeating to his brothers. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Joseph's humiliation was designed by God. God didn't agree with the means. He's not a fan of bragging. He's not a fan of favoritism. He's not a fan of, of, of plots for murder, of lying, of deceiving, of dishonoring parents. He's not a fan of adultery, any of it. What all the human actors were doing may have been for evil, but God in his sovereign purpose designed this, designed the situation. It was designed by God. This is really the Old Testament counterpart to what we learn in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's a promise which doesn't tell us when things will work out for the good. It doesn't tell us how they will work out for the good. It just tells us that they will indeed work out for the good. But notice, it's for the good, for the called, for his purpose. So a lot of times we get in trouble with this promise in the New Testament and even Joseph's story because we're not called and we're not interested in his purpose. And it takes us praying and seeking and aligning ourselves with the calling of God and with the purpose of God before the good of God and our good begins to emerge. So it's designed by God, that's the first lesson. The second lesson is that Joseph's humiliation is in some measure deserved. Joseph's humiliation is in some measure deserved. I want to explain this. Now, Joseph did not deserve to be thrown into jail. This is an instance that episode, his final episode of humiliation, is one in which Joseph lived and acted in a righteous way. He didn't even deserve to be thrown into a pit or sold into slavery. Both actions were wrong. The Bible calls these things evil. But as I've hinted at throughout, Joseph's character isn't perfect in the story. I think he is a young man that struggled with arrogance and pride and certainly a lack of humility. What we see in Potiphar's household is a righteous man, but he didn't become righteous all at once. The story is a mixture of Joseph's innocence and arrogance, and this is why I'm saying, in a sense, Joseph deserved it. Now, this may seem a little harsh to you, because telling someone who's sinned against 
who's, who receives evil from his brothers and from a woman like Potiphar's wife might seem uh, unaccustomed to those of us who are constantly hearing the importance of empathy. The truth is, though, that Joseph didn't exactly sit around playing the role of a humble, God-fearing man this whole time. There's plenty of material in the story that shows us that Joseph's needed humility. Rather than saying Joseph deserved it, though, perhaps it would be better for me to say Joseph needed to be humbled by God. Joseph needed to learn that his life was out of his control and that he was to play a part in a larger story of which he was almost wholly ignorant. Maybe we could say that Joseph's, Joseph's humiliation was demanded by his need for sanctification. That Joseph needed to be polished or refined. And in this, he didn't deserve those sins to be committed against him. But God's goals in Joseph's life demanded that he go through these trials and these hardships so that Jacob or rather Joseph, would become mature. Joseph was to be greatly used by God. Therefore, he would need to be greatly humbled. I love the saying, if God is going to use a man greatly, he must be wounded deeply. And as we saw last Sunday, that you should not trust a leader who doesn't limp. Designed by God and deserved by Joseph. The third lesson about Joseph's humiliation that we need to learn this morning is that his spiral to the earth through criticism, conspiracy, and the criminal charge draws us to think about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it points us to Christ. I want to talk about how to read the Bible in this case because Jesus is not mentioned, even hinted at in this passage. And yet the life story that Joseph travels remarkably resembles the life story of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus was favored by his father, which made his Jewish brothers angry. You see that? Jesus was given a royal robe, in a sense, when the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that was said not just once, but twice in Jesus' life. And Jesus was mistreated consistently by those around him. And it isn't hard to see how his kinsmen, his Jewish brothers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, plotted to murder him. And then when they did, they lied about it and said that it was something different. So while there's no explicit biblical reference in the New Testament or in the Old Testament linking the life of Jesus to the life of Joseph. The narrative pattern of the life of Joseph is intended by the writers of scripture to draw our, our focus to how Joseph himself resembles Jesus Christ. PCA pastor Wallace Tinsley put it this way, when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he suffered hell. Hell is separation from God. When our Lord, burdened with the sum total of the sins of all believers, cried out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was not making a literary statement. He was making a literal statement. God the Father had forsaken the Son at that moment. The beloved Son, with whom the Father had said he was well pleased, was separated from the fellowship with the Father 
that he had known from all eternity. The point is that Christ's humiliation was part of the process of God's sovereign plan to bring redemption to the world. And how did God use Joseph? By humbling Joseph and bringing him into Egypt and into that position of slavery in the jail, unknown, ultimately God used Joseph to redeem and rescue the family of Jacob such that the the promised family would become a royal nation. Well, in my opening examples of humiliation, I used, I, I told you a few stories from my own life that were fairly innocent. I mean, no one wants to not get picked for their middle school softball team, but it happens, right? I mean, and you survive. There are other cases of humiliation, however, where violence or even something like sexual abuse, traumatic coercion, forces someone lower in violation of even the most basic laws of human decency. Do you think that such instances, the most graphic instance that you can imagine, are such instances still within the purview and the hand of a holy God? Now we know God is not an author of evil, but when evil happens to you or to someone you love, if someone intends evil for you, as Joseph says in Genesis 50, you intended it for evil. If you know that someone is plotting evil or committing evil against you, or if as a child some adult did evil in your life that you have lived with ever since, is it possible, do you believe, that God can work that for good? This is a very important question. It's a question that arises out of the story of Joseph and one that we need to wrestle with. Can God be so powerful that he can override the evil intentions of evil men and women and bring about something good? Now, I don't know if this is a theoretical question for you or if perhaps it's a very real question for you. The answer, though, of Scripture is yes. It's a mystery, but the answer is yes. The greatest instance of this is our Lord Jesus Christ, who underwent the most violent, greatest degradation possible, but did so willingly, knowing that it was evil, and yet he did not resist, and he did so for your and for my salvation. Well, in applying this morning's message as we conclude this morning, I want to insist and emphasize for all of us, God's plan is good. Others may intend evil. They're the, they're, the, they're the ones down in the dirt. They're the ones that are nipping at your, at your heels. But you need to remember, God's plan for you is good. Your humiliations as you've been walking down into the basement, down, down, down into the dirt for whatever is going on, they have been designed by God who is not the author of evil, but is sovereign over all in, in his dealings. They have been designed to humble you. I'm not saying you deserve it, but your sanctification demands it. You are not going to be the mature servant of Christ. You're not going to be the refined leader in the church that God wants you to be unless and until you go through these situations. Stop fighting and resisting the humbling circumstances in your life. Note, you are free to correct wrongs. You are free to address injustices. But sometimes it may not be wise to do so. 
there are instances again and again in life when people have chosen to not use the opportunity that they have to get justice and have benefited from it. At the same time, we have a Christian calling in the world to try as we must to right the wrongs that exist. The point is that we need to have a wider horizon than just me being wronged. We need to see what is God up to in this particular situation. Number two, you are not the hero of your story. And Joseph is not the hero of this story either. Who opened his mother's womb that he would be born in the first place? That was an answer to prayer right there. And then who gave Joseph this dream? Who gave Jacob the blessing in the first place? And who saw to it that, that Joseph was not murdered, which was the original plan, but instead he was only sold into slavery? At the time, Joseph didn't really know what God was doing. But he was learning that he was not the hero of the story. And we see this come out by the time he gets into Potiphar's house. I will not do this thing and sin against God. This is a hard lesson for children to learn. I mean, teenager by definition is focusing on myself. I'm trying to figure out who I am, what my place is in the world, what I'm going to be when I grow up. If I'm going to get married, will I have a family? Where will I live? What will my friends be like? And so there's a lot of inward reflection. What do I believe? But that inward reflection tends to cause you as teenagers to be extremely self-centered. And what I'm saying is, you are not the hero of your story. As you think and pray and chew and cogitate and meditate and, and, and over and over and over examine and consider what your calling in life is, make sure that God, not you, winds up as the hero of the story. This is what the New Testament calls, by the way, dying to yourself. There's nothing more beautiful than a teenager who's wrestling with these life issues is a living, breathing example of someone who has died to self. Galatians 2.20, I love to quote this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 had to be discovered at some point in Joseph's life. I tend to think it was somewhere between the Ishmaelite traders and Potiphar's house. Somewhere maybe in that caravan. And of course, Gladiator is one of my favorite movies, so I'm picturing Maximus in the caravan of you know, he's sold into the, to slavery. And somewhere in that moment, possibly, he had his awakening. You know what? I'm not the hero of the story. God has brought me down, down. And that he may bring me down farther still. The last thing I want to say in terms of application for our church is sin is messy. Evil happens. And it's worth it. It's worth it's worth dealing with it. The church is not going to be a tidy organization where everything matches and everything's coordinated and all is working exactly as it should be. I mean, how could it be? Look at all of you. <laughs> and look at me. No, the church is a ragtag band of rebel 
fighters, as I like to say sometime. Thank you very much, George Lucas. The church is messy because of the sins of the people who may or may not look like you, who may or may not struggle with things like you, but whose messes are completely part of God's redeeming purposes in their lives and in the world. You're going to meet people whose lives are just off the chain messy. And you're going to be tempted to think, well, God's clearly not working there, or I want nothing to do with that. But the better answer is, all those people intended that for evil. But I'm going to walk with this brother or sister, and I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold on and say, God is at work in this situation. God intends this for good. And a warning. If you're not interested in being humbled, please don't come to this church. Please. There is no room in this fellowship for people that are proud, conceited, or self-assured that they are the hero of the story. All the way down to the earth is where God wants all of us. When you get the secret, when you discover it, you won't just wait for God to humble you, you will actually humble yourself. That's the real secret to the Christian path, isn't it? People who have been walking it a while are like, yeah, it's better if you can anticipate those humblings and say, Lord, you know, I think I need to be humbled right now. That's called confessing sin. It's called changing your mind. It's called admitting you were wrong. It's called opening up, lowering your defenses. Let's not be a church that's filled with a bunch of people who act like we don't need to be humbled when all of us know we need to be humbled. Let's share stories together about how God is actively humbling us. Let's encourage each other in saying, I know it's hard. I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, sister. And as you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you can be sure that in the proper time, he will lift you up. And that is a message for a modern-day redeemed patriarch. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Joseph. Thank you for what we're learning about him and his humiliation. Thank you that he shows us a picture of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he also gives us a hint about the kinds of hardships that each one of us might face in our lives or perhaps already have. Although I tremble to think that someone would be try to, to kill another individual or throw that person into jail, it certainly wouldn't be the craziest thing that we've heard about. And if that were happening in our church, Lord, we pray that we would trust you, that you are at work. Yes, we would fight injustices where we can, but we would also learn the secret of contentment and meekness and humility, which are so precious in the sight of God. And as we learn this, Lord, may we learn it together. And not, may not one of us feel isolated as we go through life's humbling circumstances. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions.
Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.